0: You know, there once was a time when giants walked the earth. And I don't mean just Goliath. I mean giants of the faith, titans of the truth. I mean men who fought the good fight, who kept the faith, who finished the course. I'm talking about men who counted all things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Men for whom to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yes, oh church, there once was a time when giants walked the earth. And they're called the performers. These are men who risked their lives, who rattled Satan's cage, stood against the world, who defied the Pope and all his laws, and who stood undaunted in the proclamation of the word of God, no matter the pain, no matter the danger that it brought to their lives. You understand, these are men of whom the world was not worthy, Hebrews eleven thirty-eight, and we owe so much to these men, a debt that cannot be repaid with cowardice. We owe a debt that cannot be repaid with compromise. The only thing that will honor the reformers and the word of God that they died to proclaim is to emulate their courage and to share their convictions. And yet you realize, don't you, that we can't have a conversation about the reformers or the reformation for very long until William Tyndale of England comes up in the conversation. At least we shouldn't do that. And the reason for that is because this man gave his life to give the people of England a Bible in their own language, which in the 1500s, by the way, was completely illegal and had been for 150 years. In other words, you either read or own a Bible in English, and you're a dead man. And yet William Tyndale didn't just own a Bible in English. He translated the Bible into English and for that heinous crime, they imprisoned him, they chained him, they strangled him and they consumed his body in the flames and yet despite their best efforts to destroy him and to silence him forever, William Tyndale still speaks and lives. He still lives, not just with Christ, awaiting the kingdom and his glorified body, but William Tyndale still speaks today anywhere where English is spoken. Because you might not know the staggering legacy of William Tyndale, that he is the father of the English Reformation. He is the father of the English Bible. And get a lot of this in many ways, he is also the father of the English language itself. see, we're talking about the Reformation this month, and what the Reformation is, is a revolution, a God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated revolution to bring the entirety of Christianity back under the supreme authority of the Word of God, because you understand, don't you, the only true Reformation is that which emanates from the Word of God the only authentic movements of God in history had at their blazing center the Word of God, preached and proclaimed and loved and treasured in the hearts of God's people. Anything else is just mystical madness and superstitious nonsense. You see, Tyndale understood that. After his own conversion, Tyndale looked upon the landscape of Christianity and he came to the realization there is no Christianity in England. These people aren't saved. These people are totally ignorant of the gospel. All they know is the polluted Catholic gospel of works and merit. They are still under the delusion that the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ is not enough to save them and they didn't have a Bible to tell them any different and so in this dark hour God raised up a giant of the faith William Tyndale to give the greatest gift of the English Reformation namely a Bible in their own language the cost of doing so would be absolutely enormous he never married fled the country lived underground as a condemned heretic and spent the last 12 years of his life as a hunted fugitive laboring in the shadows to give his people a Bible in their own language. And he never went home to England again. And he would pay the ultimate price giving his life as a martyr. And we are so glad that he did because the way it worked out in God's providence is that we are Christians today precisely because Tyndale wasn't a wimp. There was something more important than being safe. There was something more important than quality of life. There was the glory of Christ and the word of God and eternal souls and the power of the gospel to save those who believe. And church, the whole reason why we're doing this little series on the Reformation is not at all to worship the reformers, but to worship the God of the reformers and to use their lives as kindling in our souls to continue the reformation today because it is not over. So here we go. The life, the legacy, the labors of William Tyndale, the father of the English reformation. If you have notes, you can see where we're going. There's three parts. Let's begin with part one. The reformation in England. The Reformation in England. Because before we get to the man himself, we need to understand the England in which he lived and just how tragic the situation really was. And when you think about church history, you can literally divide up church history in this way. You can summarize it in the following way. You can say that Christ and the apostles, first and second century, formed the church. Then there were the church fathers, second through the fifth century, who conformed the church the best they could to the scriptures. Then from the sixth to the 16th century, you could say that the Catholic church deformed the church. And then when the Reformation exploded onto the scene in the 16th century, you can say that the church, that they reformed the church. It was formed, it was conformed, it was deformed, and then it was reformed. Again, the Reformation is where men, under the conviction of the scriptures, sought to bring the entirety of Christianity back under the supreme authority of the word of God. And even though the Reformation began in 1517 when Luther hammered onto the Wittenberg church doors, his 95 theses, it still took nevertheless a little time before the Reformation would stretch across the channel into England. The reason for that, very simply, is because like lots of other places in Europe, Satan long had the seniority in England, and he would not yield his ground easily. Steve Lawson, author, theologian, wrote this about the spiritual vibe of England at that time. Listen to what he says. As Tyndale entered the world scene, all of England lay covered under a spiritual cloak of darkness and depravity. The church in England remained shrouded in the midnight of spiritual ignorance. The knowledge of the scriptures had all been but extinguished in the land. Although there were some 20,000 priests in England, it was said that they were so ignorant of the Bible, they could not translate even so much as one sentence from the Lord's Prayer into English. The clergy were so bogged down in the mire of religious superstition that they literally had no knowledge of the truth. You understand the priests in that day were nothing more than the blind leading the blind, the dead leading the dead. And as Tyndale later testified to his utter dismay, none of them were converted. They were harmfully ignorant, slaves of sin, trapped in spiritual darkness with absolutely zero knowledge, saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what made it worse is that everything religious and and spiritual in England in that day was in Latin. The mass was in Latin. The prayers were in Latin. Everything the priest said and did was recited in Latin phrases that he didn't actually understand. The Bible readings in the services, such as they were, were read in a Latin translation that nobody actually understood. And so needless to say, there was a stifling famine in the land in England in those days. And yet the Catholic authorities in England made it very clear that the word of God was not a welcome presence in their domain. In 1401, get a load of this, Parliament passed a legislation known as De Heretico comburendo which literally means on the burning of heretics This was a law that legalized the burning of anyone at the stake who dared question, step out of line with the Pope and the teachings of the church. 1408, seven years later, a bishop named Thomas Arundel passed a law that made translating or even reading the Bible in English without the consent of the Catholic Church a capital crime punishable by death. And they were serious, and they did it! I mentioned it two weeks ago in 1519 in a town called Coventry, England. Seven men were burned alive for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. So needless to say, a reformation movement in England was going to be a steep uphill climb all the way up and the cost of doing so would be martyrs, lots and lots of martyrs. And there were lots of martyrs the bodies piled up for 300 years. From the 14th to the 17th centuries in England as the Catholic Church opposed the word of God with absolute hatred and barbarity. And yet despite the danger, Knowing the risks, Tyndale would do what no one else had ever done before. He would translate the word of God directly from the Hebrew and Greek into English to be read by the common people, and in so doing, pierce through the darkness that had long suffocated the people of England. Which leads me to part two. Part two, the incalculable influence of William Tyndale. The incalculable influence of William Tyndale. But you have to understand, Tyndale wasn't merely... A driving force in the Reformation of England. Tyndale was the Reformation in England. And we need to appreciate all the ways that God providentially prepared this man to make an impact so massive that in one way or another, we still feel the impact even to this very moment. You understand, this guy wasn't just smart or intelligent. He was on another level entirely. Genius level. Trained at Oxford, then at Cambridge, he received the highest training on the planet in that day in linguistics and philology, languages and literature. Tyndale was a master of language. In fact, he was fluent in eight of them. Hebrew, Greek, Latin, German, Italian, Spanish, French, and of course, English and it was said by those who knew him that he was so good in any of those languages that should anyone from that country hear him speaking any of those languages they would assume that he was speaking his own native language one writer called tyndale a linguistic genius whose expertise in multiple languages dazzled the scholarly world of his day so it's clear in the providence of god that this man was made of something different a chosen instrument for one of the darkest hours of the church. And in the darkest hour of England, what they needed most was a Bible in their own language because, again, you would agree that the only true Reformation is that which emanates from the Word of God. Tyndale was exactly the man for the job. This was no amateur, hack, clumsy, novice carving out a rude translation out of the back of a van. No, Tyndale was a master craftsman a semantic engineer, a wizard with words, a sculptor, an artist who possessed the unsurpassed ability to work with the sounds and rhythms of an English language which in that day was still in flux and rough and unrefined. And so Tyndale was the first, and I mean the very first person in history ever to translate the word of God into English straight from the Hebrew and the Greek. And of course, there was Wycliffe, who 150 years earlier translated the New Testament into English. That's true. And with no disrespect to the man, it was rough. It was crude. It was Massive it was bulky it was expensive it was handwritten it was hard to get a hold of and it was translated from the Latin not from the Greek and the Latin was full of problems and mistranslations, but you see Tyndale's achievement of a clear coherent compelling Captivating English version from the Hebrew and Greek had never ever been done before in history ever and so we need, to, and we need a sense of how staggering this achievement really is. We need to wrap our heads around this because we think, don't we, that the, that the King James version is that which gave us our language for Christianity? Don't we assume that? And yet it was not. It was not the King James that gave us our English Bible. It was Tyndale. Because did you know that 84% of the King James New Testament is Tyndale? They just took it from him. They couldn't improve upon what he did. Did you know that 70% of the Old Testament work that Tyndale did is used in the King James? This is a shocking thing because the Bible he produced was by himself in exile, on the run, price on his head, target on his chest, translating in, in, in some back room somewhere. And yet 70 years later when they did the King James, there was a team of 50 scholars meeting in libraries with the the greatest uh, uh, of resources in the world at their disposal, and they could not improve upon Tyndale's work. What do you make of that? (laughs) Tyndale's biographer put it like this. His unsurpassed ability as a translator to create unforgettable words and phrases is still today direct and living. He goes on, 500 years later, newspapers still quote Tyndale, though unknowingly, and he has reached more people than even Shakespeare himself. In fact, when Shakespeare quoted the Bible in his plays, he quoted Tyndale. Let me give you a sampling of Tyndale's work. We need to get a sense uh, of what the impact that Christ used this man to make. Here is a sampling of things that he translated that we know so well, and yet we did not know that it came from Tyndale. Let there be light. And there was light. That's Tyndale. That's Tyndale. He, He wrote that. I mean, it's in the Hebrew, but he translated it into English. And any of you who know Hebrew know that there are a couple different alternative ways to translate that phrase. But you see, Tyndale not only got it exactly right, but he translated it into English in a way that is poignant and profound. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. That is the most well-known benediction in the entire Bible, and it's Tyndale. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One of the most important Christological statements in the entire Bible, and it's Tyndale. There were shepherds abiding in the field. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The signs of the times, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. In him we live and move and have our being. Fight the good fight of faith. And it's all Tyndale. Words. Words. Some of the words that we use every single week in our lives, Tyndale either invented or he brought into the stream of common Christianity through his translation, fig leaves, birthright, sin offerings, swaddling cloths. He even invented the word slaughter. He made that word up. Apostleship, busybody, intercession, mercy seat. He literally coined the terms atonement, Passover, and scapegoat. Even fisherman is Tyndale's word. You understand? We wouldn't even know what an ark is had it not been for Tyndale. And then there's words like grace and faith, which he didn't invent those words, but he chose those other, out of other alternatives. And they are just so right that every translation worth existing follows Tyndale's lead. You understand, this man gave us our language to understand and articulate our faith. You and I speak Tyndale English every single day, which means in many ways Tyndale even gave us the English language itself. John Piper says, this was not a mere literary phenomenon. This was a spiritual explosion. Tyndale's Bible and writings were the kindling that set the Reformation on fire in England. And here we are 500 years later still talking about Tyndale with so many words of our faith owing to this man's labor and blood. So let's go to the life. Let's go to the life of a man who was set apart by God before the foundation of the world, not only for salvation, but even for the Reformation. brings us to part three, always singing one note, the life of William Tyndale. The life of William Tyndale. You see the ages in which he was born and died, 1494, 1536, he died at 42. But like most men who became reformers, William Tyndale was a man of humble beginnings. Born in 1494 on the border of Wales in a town called Gloucestershire, his family was successful. They were a successful, well-to-do family, slightly above middle class, I suppose, being in the cloth and wool industry, but Gloucestershire, Gloucestershire was literally the country. Small town, rural, beautiful countryside on the coast, not the middle of nowhere necessarily, but definitely rustic and quiet off the beaten track. Details of his life as a boy are completely long and forgotten. All we know is, is that his family had a farm. He had two brothers, and that's all we know until 1506, when he enrolled at Oxford University, which brings me, and if you see this in your notes, the Oxford and Cambridge years, 1506 to 1521. And that wasn't unusual to, to enroll in, in the university so young. That was normal. In those days, it was a little different. It was like junior high, high school, college, all combined. and. Yet Tyndale, no surprise, displayed great skill and aptitude in everything he touched, especially the languages and writing. He mastered Latin as a teenager, studied under the finest classical scholars in the world, and after eight or nine years in study, he started to study theology with the aim of becoming a priest, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. And again, you have to understand that Tyndale is not a Christian in any sense of the term at all. He, he, he is a committed Roman Catholic. The only thing he has probably ever heard is the polluted Catholic gospel of works and merit. That's all he knows. And here's the thing. Luther, Luther is still a, a couple years away from his rediscovery of the gospel in 1517. And so get this, Tyndale begins his training to become a priest. And get this, in that day to become a priest, you hardly had to study the Bible. Sorry, something, something's going on here. That sounds great, doesn't it? Where was I? Okay, to be a priest, you hardly had to study the Bible. The, the Bible was, was a mere footnote in the curriculum. To become a priest, you didn't study the Bible, you studied what the Catholic theologians said about the Bible. which you mostly studied was Greek philosophy. That's what you studied. Tyndale rightly complained, he said, in the universities they have ordained that no man shall look at the scriptures until he be nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the scriptures. Do you hear what he just said? To become a priest in the Catholic church, you were kept away from the Bible. You were essentially brainwashed for a full decade before you were allowed to study the Bible, and then when you eventually did see it, you only saw about it what the Catholic Church wanted you to see. You understand, the Catholic Church was just producing gaggles and hordes of priests totally ignorant of the Bible, which is exactly how they wanted it. Because you understand the most dangerous people in the world in that day, at least from the church's perspective, were people who knew the Bible. For should someone learn what the Bible really says, they would soon discover that so much of what the Catholic Church taught was not only not in the text, it was against the text. And they were not about to let that happen. And 1519, note the year, 1519, two years after Luther's rediscovery of the gospel Tyndale enrolls in college at Cambridge University for yet another degree, more training, and what he walked into when he went to Cambridge was a campus in which the rumblings of the Reformation were taking the campus by storm. Spirited debate, passionate discussion was everywhere as Luther's writings were being passed around. Minds were not only engaged, but, but even souls were being saved. Like literally for the first time ever, people were hearing the soul saving life, giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Awakening and reformation was being kindled in the university. The atmosphere was simply electric. People discussed, people debated. Luther's writings were burned on campus in protest. And you see, it was to this theology, this Reformation theology, to which Tyndale was exposed. We don't really have a clear sense of when it is that he got saved. What we do know is that in 1521, he decided that he needed to step back from the academic environment, and he needed to think more carefully about the theology of the Reformation. And so that brings us to next to what I call the vision for England. The vision for England, 1521 to 1524. And you understand these are some of the most crucial years for tyndale 1521 to 1524 these are crucial not just for tyndale not just for the reformation in england but for us sitting in this very room and the reason for that is because while at cambridge tyndale got his hands just like luther did on a printed greek new testament at the age of 28 tyndale got a job as a private tutor for a family and it was a pretty sweet gig for a scholar. He had his own quarters on the estate, tutored for these kids for only a couple hours a day, and then he had the rest of his day to do whatever he wanted to do. And with his spare time, he did two monumental things. Number one, he studied the Greek New Testament for hours and hours a day. We need to pause on that. We need to, we need to consider what an incendiary thing this Greek New Testament actually was. The Greek text was published six years before this by a man named Erasmus. Do you know who that is? A Dutch scholar, a Catholic scholar, an eventual persecutor of the Reformation, he produced the Greek New Testament. You could get handwritten copies of the Greek text before this, but they were big and bulky and handwritten, hard to come by, very expensive. But now this Catholic scholar, an eventual hater of the entire Reformation cause, distributed the very kindling that would set fire to the Reformation in Europe. And the reason this is so profound is because the original Greek, the actual words of the New Testament, exposed so many Catholic teachings in that day to be exactly what they were baseless and unbiblical. Purgatory, not in the text. Penance, not in the text. Indulgences, not in the text. Papal authority, not in the text. Sacraments, the mass, the worship of Mary, sacred tradition, prayers to the saints, the treasury of merit, not a single word, any of it, anywhere in the sacred text. Instead all there was, was the depravity of man and the sovereignty of grace and the glory of God and the sin bearing death of Jesus Christ to which you had to add nothing to get saved. In other words, what Tyndale saw in those sacred hours of study was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so sometime between his Cambridge days and here, this man's soul was awakened and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. And how it happened is exactly how it happened for us was through the life-giving, soul-saving, blindness-removing power of Holy Scripture. But, church, you understand, don't you, that this is what makes the reformers so worth our time and so worth our emulation and admiration, namely, what they believed about the Word of God living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, the Word of God is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. Do you believe that? Do you believe like Tyndale and the Reformers that every page and every word on that page comes infused with the supernatural power of God Himself? Do you believe that all the long-standing struggles in your life that you have never been able to conquer can lie in obedient subjection to the sacred text? Do you believe, like the Reformers, that the Word of God is, is absolutely sufficient not only to diagnose but even to cure any tangled complexity of the human soul? Because I'm concerned, church. I'm concerned that the church has become a little too pragmatic in our day, a little too utilitarian. What I mean is, what I mean is we start to buy the sales pitch of the culture that pills and pop psychology, that has the real corner on life change and transformation. Just reading the Bible they say is not sufficient for the dilemmas of the 21st century soul. And slowly over time we begin to believe them And the answer from Tyndale and the Reformers and from the Bible is no, we will not bow. Because all the power, all the pleasure we need for all authentic life change and transformation is found right here in the sacred text of Holy Scripture. Because it's not just a piece of literature, it is a portal to the very power and presence of God himself. That's what the Reformation is, and it is not over. Far from over. You know that there are roughly, roughly 8 million people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. About 5 million of those 8 million people profess some version of Christianity, and yet, The facts are there. The stats are real. Over 60% of those people believe that the Bible is irrelevant for their lives. That's about 3 million people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who think they're saved and they're not. The Reformation is not over. The second monumental thing that happened in Tyndale's life that just absolutely changed this man is that he began to preach in various places throughout The countryside that's what priests did in that day they were encouraged to travel around preach in various parishes and offer sermons encouragements to the people and and in his sermons Tyndale was doing something that was absolutely utterly unique that had never been done before he actually preached the bible not the pathetic topical homilies given by the other priests where the scattered bible verses were read in latin no he did verse by verse preaching through the sacred text of the word of God in English. if you could wrap your head around this. That had never happened before, ever. Ever, he's preaching the word of God, translating it into English. I mean, could you imagine what this is like? hearing the word of God in their own language for the first time ever. And and you see, as he studied the Greek text, as he preached to the people, as he witnessed firsthand the tragic spiritual corruption of the priest and the people in England, it was there, it was there that the earth shattering vision was kindled in this man's soul at any cost. The word of God must be given to the people of England. An idea that sounds obvious. And one that you would expect received receive joyful acceptance and celebration by the Catholic authorities of the land. But such was not the case. Again and again, he found himself in disputes with other priests, disagreeing with his views on Scripture. In 1522, he was summoned by the Chancellor of the Catholic Church in England. That's a big deal. Summoned by him and warned about his controversial views. And all he was doing was just preaching the Bible. The family with whom he stayed, that that employed him, they would oftentimes have those visiting priests in the area come and stay for dinner, and one night he found himself in a heated debate with one of those priests, who was a little higher up on the food chain than him. They were debating about the value of the Word of God, and this priest declared to Tyndale, we would be better without God's laws than the Pope's, meaning, the word of the Pope is more important than the word of God, to which Tyndale replied in his most famous words, I defy the Pope and all his laws. Should God spare my life to be many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. And that was the passion that consumed him, the one note that consumed him all his days, getting the living and active word of God into the hands, into the souls of the common people. So he's got to translate this thing. He's got to finish the work. He's got a lot to go, but the place to go, if you're going to translate this thing, get it printed, is in London. That's where all the printers are. That's where all the connections are. So he goes there. And for the next year, he sought to get it printed. And he approached the highest Catholic authority he could find in that day, which was a man named Bishop Tunstall. Remember that name, Bishop Tunstall. Tunstall was revered, respected, and powerful, and political. And yet, and yet, and yet Tyndale assumed that because this man was a priest, a, a bishop, because he had actually assisted Erasmus with the production of the Greek New Testament, that surely this man would be excited to get the Word of God into the hands of the common people. But instead he was met with resistance and skepticism and questioning and suspicion and he stonewalled Tyndale and the reason he did is because of Luther you understand the Catholic authorities in England hated Luther but because of because of the rapid spread of the Reformation the church lost their grip and power over the people in Germany and the Catholic authorities were not about to let that happen at any cost and yet Tyndale remained undaunted he stayed in London a whole year working on the translation, trying again and again, trying to get uh, people to buy into this idea of getting the word of God to the people. And yet again, without exception, he received only opposition and resistance. The authorities wouldn't approve it. Printers wouldn't print it. And so after an entire year of dead ends and stalemates and lies and excuses and setbacks, he realized the only way this was ever going to work is if he fled to Europe under the cloak of darkness in defiance to the king, translated the word of God, and then smuggled it back into England, which is exactly what he did. Which brings us next to the exile to Europe. The exile to Europe, 1524 to 1529. And you understand, Tyndale never went home to England again. He he was in a foreign country until his death in 1536. He set sail for Germany, April 1524, and remained in exile the rest of his life, living underground like some sewer rat, all for the cause of the Reformation. And these, Europe, these years in Europe, it's really hard to trace his whereabouts. It's to, hard to trace where he was because he was, went dark, undercover, moved in secret like some nomad or outlaw on the run from the authorities because that's exactly what he was. Because you remember that law passed in 1408 that said that translating or even reading the Bible in English was a capital crime punishable by death. And so you understand, all moving to Europe does for Tyndale is just kick the can of his own execution down the road a little bit while he finishes the work. That's all it does. I think he began in Hamburg, Germany. And then went to Wittenberg for 10 months where he may have met Luther, mastered the German language and where he saw for the very first time ever the opening pages of Matthew's gospel printed in English for the very first time. And the problem was not so much getting it printed, the problem was getting it back to England. And so that led him to a town called Cologne, Germany which was hostile to the Reformation, absolutely hostile to the Reformation, and yet it was the most strategic place to be. The reason for that is because it was built right there on the river, which daily sent ships, cargo ships, back to England. And so the thought was, hide in plain sight, sneak Bibles into the cargo ships headed for England, and spread the Reformation that way. So that's what he did. On the very doorstep of hell itself, Tyndale continued the work, which had to be done in absolute secrecy. Right. He had to translate during the day in private. They had to print at night when everyone else was asleep because should word get out what he and his little tiny team were doing, they would be imprisoned and arrested and possibly even executed. And the authorities did find out. The next year in 1525, some of the employees of the print shop got drunk in a pub and they began to speak a little too openly about Tyndale's secret project, which just happened to be heard by a bitter hater, and opponent of the Reformation, a man named John Cochlius who called the Catholic cops. And that night they went to the print shop, kicked open the door, stormed the room, and shut down the printing and confiscated the illegal contraband. Had it not been for a, 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 an anonymous tip, almost, given to Tyndale, They would have also been arrested they were able to grab armfuls of their translation work and head out the back door as the authorities literally were entering into the room these were hard days in exile Tyndale wrote this in a letter to a friend not complaining but brutally honest he said I suffer greatly with my pains my poverty my exile out of my natural country and bitter absence from my friends, my hunger, my thirst, my cold, the great danger wherewith I am everywhere encompassed and finally innumerable other hard and sharp fightings which I unceasingly endure. This man was poverty-stricken, hungry, cold, constant danger, and in isolation. So their cover's blown. Cologne's now too hot to continue the work. And so what he does is travel southeast to Worms, Germany. Worms, Germany, which under Luther's influence was a little more friendly to the Reformation. And while at Worms, those four years, two remarkable things happened. Like so remarkable, in fact, that in one way or another, we still feel the effects of these things to this very day. Number one, number one, in the four years living at Worms, Tyndale, get this, learned and mastered Hebrew. He learned and mastered Hebrew in exile, on the run, price on his head, target on his chest. Who does that? And you understand, this is a really, really big deal because get this. There was maybe, maybe one to two people in all of England who knew Hebrew. And you know why he did that, don't you? You know why? It's because so that he could get into English for the very first time, the Old Testament straight from the Hebrew. That did not exist anywhere before Tyndale. He was the first. You understand? Tyndale was a man obsessed rightly obsessed with getting the whole Bible into the hands of the people. This is a man who understood that without the word of God, known and loved and treasured and preached that God's elect do not get saved, churches do not get planted. And the reign of the evil one remains profoundly unshaken. The second remarkable thing that happened in Vorm is 1526. Listen carefully. He completed the New Testament, at least the first edition. New Testament was finished straight from the greek which was then printed uh, hidden in bales of cotton headed for london floated up the rhine river across the channel to the port of london where in god's providence tyndale had an old contact from the cloth making industry waiting on the other side to receive the new testaments and they were distributed everywhere in england even as far up as north of scotland the word of god was Spreading across the English world right under the nose of the king. It said that three to six thousand copies of the New Testament multiple times a year as it was being printed was being shipped to England. Tyndale wanted to set the word world on fire through his master's word, and that is exactly what was happening. You understand, don't you? The debt that we owe to this man. We have the Bible in English and we believe the true gospel precisely because, as I said, Tyndale wasn't a wimp. There was something more important in life than being safe. There was something more important than quality of life. There is the glory of Christ and the word of God and eternal souls hanging in the balance and the power of the gospel to save those who believe, which was happening in England. Over the next three years, pastors were preaching the word People got saved, a a ravenous appetite for the word of God was spreading through the land. People who once formerly walked in darkness had now seen a great light, A, a land and a nation once filled only with spiritual cadavers were being awakened and saved by sovereign grace. The Reformation was a flame in the land and it could not be put out even with hostile persecution, although they tried. The authorities in England did not deal kindly with this awakening and reformation. They struck fast and they struck hard. The Catholic Gestapo began to confiscate the New Testament as soon as they found it, burning them publicly in the streets as a warning to anyone dare possess the forbidden book. Booksellers in England were warned, threatened with prison if they ever dare carry the banned book. Bishop Tunstall, remember him several years earlier? On October 24th, 1526, organized an official public burning of the New Testament at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Think about that. Bishop Tunstall burned the Bible. This isn't some Muslim or or some foaming at the mouth atheist. This is a Catholic bishop burning the word of God. Tunstall was himself a Greek scholar. He knew better than anyone that Tyndale's work was absolutely incredible. And yet he was afraid. And the church was afraid because they knew that the word of God undiluted, and unpolluted would expose the entire sacramental system of the Catholic Church to be an absolute sham, which it is. So they turned up the heat. The next year in 1527, sympathizers with Tyndale, preachers of the Reformation, owners of the New Testament, were being arrested, interrogated, tortured, and eventually murdered. This is real. And all this time, they had been scouring Europe looking for the man, looking for public enemy number one, and they finally found a way to catch him, which brings me finally to the manhunt for the outlaw. The manhunt for the outlaw, 1529 to 1536. In 1529, Tyndale moved northwest to Antwerp, Belgium, which is right on the coast, just across from the English Channel. And there he buried himself in his new life's work, which is to translate the Old Testament into English. With stubborn tenacity, Tyndale could not be stopped until the hangman's noose killed him and the fire consumed him, which was coming very soon for him. Because again, as I said, the Catholic authorities back in England were scouring all of England looking for him, and they found a way. They found a way to track down the man, and to do so, they found a Judas, a traitor, a man willing to pretend to go undercover, pretend to be Tyndale's friend, and then hand him over to the authorities, and the man whom they found was named Henry Phillips, a scumbag and gambling junkie, in trouble with the sharks, who needed a little cash. And so when the Catholic Church found out his price, they paid this man in 1535 to travel to Belgium to track Tyndale down, get him to trust them, and then deliver, them, deliver him into their hands. And this villainous, greedy, spineless man did exactly that. And amazingly, he found Tyndale. I, I mean, if Henry Phillips was anything, he was, he was persistent and industrious pretending to be a sympathizer with the Reformation cause, and Tyndale being a little too trusting, trusting, even though warned by friends not to trust this man, Henry Phillips took almost a year to groom Tyndale, get him to trust him. And then one night inviting him to a meal, I'm skipping lots of course, lured him down a dark narrow alley at the end of which waited the police who seized him, bound him, immediately took him into a prison outside the city and for the next 18 months rotted in isolation in a freezing dungeon, the conditions of which were so bad that he literally began to die. And he was 42. (laughs) It was a long and painful death leading to his execution. And to show you what this man is made of, I can't help but quote to you a, in full a brief letter that he wrote to the warden while in prison. Listen carefully. I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap for I suffer greatly from cold in the head and I am afflicted by a perpetual catarrh. You know what Qatar is? It's like a sinus infection, but worse. I need a warmer cult coat also. For this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth as well to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts also are worn out. He has a woolen short of mine. If he would be so good to send that to me as well. And also I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone here in the dark. But most of all, most of all, I beg, and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass my time in study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been made, taken concerning me, to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding in the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. W. Tindallis. We don't know if his request were ever granted. We do know he didn't make it through the winter. Because, because on August 1536, his verdict was sealed. He was formally condemned as a heretic, degraded from Catholic priesthood. And then on October 6th, they led him out of the prison for the first time in 18 months to the place of execution. He was tied to the stake, surrounded by kindling and firewood sprinkled with gunpowder to obliterate his body and an iron chain placed around his neck. And yet just Before they pulled the chain with his last breath, he looked up into the sky and at the top of his lungs declared, O Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Meaning save this man, awaken this man's soul. And move him to give the people of England the Bible in which is found the message that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And after he cried out, they pulled the chain and strangled this man. And then they burnt his lifeless corpse, foolishly thinking that they were putting an end to him. But what it really was was just the beginning. Because anywhere where English is spoken, Tyndale still speaks. And so what we need, and I close with this, what we need, you understand, is more Tyndales. We need more Tyndales with courage to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture. We need more Tyndales with zealous resolve for the glory of God. We need more Tyndales who will translate the word of God for the forgotten peoples of the world. We need more Tyndales to proclaim the gospel through the written page in the face of imminent danger and increasing hostility. It's coming. We need more Tyndales who passionately love the word of God and desire it to fill every pulpit, every seminary, every Sunday school class, every small group, and who will say with Psalm 119, 103, how sweet is your word to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Oh, King Jesus, Tyndale was just a man, just a human, just like us. A sinner who needed to be saved and was saved. A sinner who needed your grace to obey you and you supplied that. A man with the same nature and constitution as us. A man who, like us, is only made of dust and yet what dust Tyndale was. Oh, Lord, may you use his life and Luther's life and and Calvin's life, and Knox's life, and others' lives who, who gave up everything so that your word could be proclaimed. Let us have that same commitment, O Lord. Help us to, to not take for granted your sacred word and give our lives to study and meditation on it. I pray that you would cause us to feel a collective weight and burden over the lost people that you have strategically placed in our lives, and that we would be willing to proclaim your word to them with courage and conviction and passion, and love. Oh, Lord, help us to see that what the world needs from us is not our winsome personalities, but that our belief in the sufficiency of your word and our willingness to proclaim it. Help us now, Lord, as we seek to become new reformers in a hostile and dangerous world. In your mighty name we pray.